Good morning and uh, welcome to our quarterly podcast where we share our macroeconomic updates and portfolio performance over the last three months. I'm Helen Watson, the CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business, and I'm joined today by our investment strategist, Victor Balfour, and our co-head of portfolio management, Hugo Cable Cure. Firstly, I did just want to say that I hope you and your families are all safe and well. We sit down at the end of the quarter, as usual, and this is the third quarter of 2020, which seems extraordinary, uh, to discuss the macroeconomic outlook and to update you on the performance over the last few months. Unfortunately, coronavirus continues to cast a shadow over day-to-day life. And here in the UK, recent surges in cases have already resulted in localised lockdowns and threaten a return to a more severe and widespread restrictions. However, despite these uncertainties, we've continued to see reasonable economic recovery alongside a market rebound. So, Victor, could you give us a bit more of an insight into how the stock market has fared in this quarter? So, yes, of course. I mean, after what was a a very sharp recovery for capital markets in the second quarter, we really saw a continuation of that trend into the third quarter with stocks, bonds, commodities and property all moving higher. And actually, in many cases, some of these actually were touching intra-quarter highs. We did see a modest pullback in September, but for the most part, most asset classes now are in positive territory on a year-to-date basis. Global stocks are up nearly 2%, alongside global government bonds up about 5 We've witnessed some interesting dynamics this quarter. Gold continued its upward march and touched an all-time high back in mid-August, it has subsequently retreated a bit. Uh, And in terms of equity markets, so-called growth stocks, which are really dominated by some of the the tech-orientated names, have continued to outperform uh, some of the more downtrodden cyclical sectors, um, which comprise the sort of value stocks. Actually, interestingly, year to date, the largest five US stocks have returned nearly 50% collectively, making it really an outsized contribution to US stock market returns. Of course, after this pretty remarkable broader stock market run, many are questioning really whether it is running out of steam. Uh, And of course, going back to March, looking across the valley was the right course of action. But crucially, how do we now see this outlook evolving? Naturally, COVID is perhaps one of the, the most pressing risks at present. We know that global contagion rates have moved higher. There's now a pronounced second wave in Europe, and certainly a number of hotspots are emerging, whether it's Paris on maximum alert and New York City, which is uh, supposedly exploring options to close non-essential businesses. Uh, And of course, uh, as you mentioned, Helen, here in the UK, the government has varying degrees of restrictions in place with, with many measures more likely forthcoming. Yet, though infection rates have picked up, uh, correspondingly, fatality rates for the time being are still relatively subdued. Now, whether the virus is simply infecting a younger demographic or, uh, or there's better testing or even, of course, better treatment, it does suggest that this emerging second wave may take uh, a different form to the one that we saw back in spring. And so far, as I've mentioned, restrictions have been either localised or, or generally specific. And I think certainly there's more thought being given to the economic cost of, of such measures. And of course, longer term, you know, on the vaccine front, we know there are you know, nearly, nearly a dozen different iterations running through phase three trials at the moment. And this does give, I guess, some hope of a return to uh, longer term uh, normality. 
Of course, despite this ongoing acceleration in new cases, we still see the economic revival as having relatively decent momentum. We saw some pretty sensational falls in GDP in the second quarter. Uh, the US contracted nearly 10%. Europe fell a little more than that. Uh, and the UK actually was actually at the bottom of the, the sort of G7 pack, if you like, down nearly a uh, fifth. Though these were, in fact, smaller than uh, initially feared by some, some sort of relatively gloomy economists. Encouragingly, the more recent data suggests that these economies have already recovered half of their lost output, if not more, in the third quarter. The US labor market, for example, really does testify to this. It's actually recouped uh, more than half of the 22 million jobs lost in five short months. And this is far swifter than we've actually seen in past crises. Europe's recovery has been a little more muted, but is still distinct. And I, we obviously haven't yet seen the full outturn of corporate failures or layoffs there. Of course, this, on the sort of job side, certainly a number of these jobs have been protected by uh, retention schemes, which have been uh, extended in many cases. As we see it, the recovery is certainly uneven. We know that on the one hand, the hospitality, travel, leisure, those segments are unlikely to turn to pre-crisis levels of output for some time. But on the other hand, we know that some segments are already back above pre-crisis levels. So things like retail spending in the US, Europe and the UK are already back at 2019 levels and above that. Interestingly, construction is also surging ahead, really buoyed by a resurgent property market. That said, at some stage, we do have to confront the prospect that this economic data may start to roll over at some stage. It, it would be entirely natural for growth to fade after what was such a strong initial turnaround. But crucially, as we see it, there's no reason to expect it to cease. Certainly the upward momentum may help sustain growth through these new restrictions that have been introduced in the last month or so. And I think our overriding view here is that provided that wholesale lockdowns are not reintroduced, then a return to sort of 2019 levels of output is feasible at some stage in 2021. And I think one of the reasons for remaining reasonably constructive about the outlook is the policy setting. Central bank action has remained dovish with this lower for longer policy setting likely to endure for some time. Take the Federal Reserve. It recently revised its policy framework, allowing inflation to run higher than the current 2% inflation target for some time in a sort of bid, I guess, to foster more economic growth. Whether or not they can achieve this is, is a moot point. That said, it does give the Fed more flexibility and does suggest that the policy rate will remain put for, for many years to come. Um, the ECB, European Central Bank, is also exploring uh, its inflation target uh, and may be looking to adopt a similar framework uh, in the near future. Uh, and then here in the UK, the Bank of England during the quarter did in fact expand its asset purchase program um, and is also investigating the practical side of negative rates, although publicly it's stated that it's not yet considering this option. And then of course on the fiscal side, for the most part, this does remain supportive too. Perhaps the most significant development over the quarter uh, was the European Commission's rubber stamping of the 750 billion euro pandemic recovery fund. Although relatively modest in size, perhaps 4% of GDP, it is the first attempt at collective borrowing with some of the funds actually to be distributed to member states in the form of grants, not loans. Uh, and arguably this could mark 
a further longer way to step towards a more collective federalist financing in the EU. Uh, and of course, at the individual level, many countries are also, including the UK, have been expanding their various emergency measures uh, and introducing new schemes that target uh, really struggling sectors. Perhaps one challenging area has been uh, the US, where uh, a stimulus package has proved more challenging. Congressional deadlock, it seems, has sort of hindered various attempts at this new relief package. But there is sort of subtle evidence so far that there is bipartisan appetite mounting for some package in the months ahead. Now, of course, there are other risks that do remain to this outlook. We know the, of the geopolitical variety, these are pretty unrelenting. Um, US civil unrest, China technology bashing, this is exposing some of the fraught nature of foreign relations at the moment. Brexit is, of course, approaching its uh, 11th hour. Uh, and of course, the US election is nearly upon us. Yet, despite these ongoing geopolitical concerns and, of course, you know, COVID-related risks, we still think on balance that the risks are tilted to the upside, um, supported by what we see as a strong economic rebound and ongoing monetary and fiscal generosity that we believe will remain in place even as economies continue to, to, to grow. From an investment standpoint, what does this mean? Well, although stocks have lost some headroom after their recent rally, prospective real returns are still positive from here. Conversely, I think we know that most high quality bonds seem unlikely to beat even modest inflation. Overall, we still think our portfolio is capable of maintaining the real value of wealth longer term. And so we continue to advise uh, our long term investors to stay positioned accordingly. Thank you, Victor. I don't think we can get away without asking you something about the US election. I'm not going to ask you to make a prediction because uh, it's impossible. I guess one of the questions would be, you know, what are some of the risks that we might see to a Biden presidency, if that's what we get? Uh, yes, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, he obviously less than a month ago, he's, he has been gaining in the polls. I think the latest poll I've seen is on an average is about eight, an eight point lead. And of course, there is concern that in the short term, a Biden win could prompt some unease as, as markets react, I guess, to some of the more challenging policy developments he's, he's proposing, particularly uh, higher tax rates for corporates uh, and, of course, higher regulation for a number of, of sectors. But I think although this, this sort of short term unease is a risk, I think in the longer term, a Biden win isn't definitively negative for U.S. risk assets. If we think about Trump as being, a, I guess, a continuity of, of existing programs, Biden would, would herald probably a shift towards much more greater state involvement, uh, arguably with a probably more global outlook. So of, of course, the more contentious policies, he's proposing to repeal some of Trump's favorable tax policies. He also favors greater regulation, as I mentioned, particularly for healthcare, energy and financial sectors. Yet set against this, he's also talking about introducing a big infrastructure spending plan uh, and, of course, uh, a large number of new green initiatives that might promote clean energy by 2035. And through this lens, these could foster a more sustainable form of long-term growth. And in terms of those sort of the tax points, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that the US is a relatively low tax economy to begin with. And even with you know, higher tax rates for corporates, it will likely remain that way. The other sort of point that we think probably worth emphasizing is that context matters a great deal. And certainly from a historical perspective, it's that broader macroeconomic setting that likely matters more than the president's political complexion. Uh, and of course, Biden here will still need a clean team of Congress in order to implement some of those more uh, contentious policies.
I'm interested about inflation as well, but I think we'll come back to that maybe. Hugo, I wanted to bring you in here because I think you've got a view on inflation as well. So it'd be good to bring you back in then, Victor, if you can. Hmm. So, Hugo, we've often talked about the performance of our portfolios having periods when they're very lumpy. I think it's fair to say, is it, that probably the last quarter was one of those lumpy lumps? <laughs> yes, um, it, it certainly looks like one of those lumps. So portfolios uh, performed very well over the last three months, uh, certainly better than equity markets uh, overall. And when, when I look at the drivers, there doesn't seem to be a particular theme, really, just a number of individual stocks and funds seeing some uh, big gains. So how does performance look for the quarter and where does that leave us on a year-to-date basis? This takes us, and this is all for a balanced portfolios or the new court funds. So for sterling, it takes us around up around 5.5% uh, over the quarter and 3% up uh, for the year. For dollar portfolios, uh, up 7.5% to 8% uh, over the last three months and around up 4% uh, year to date. And finally, for the euro portfolios, up 55 to 6% over the three-month period which leaves those portfolios flat to slightly down for the year. And the differences between the different portfolios is largely due to currency movements. So the euro has been the strongest uh, of the three currencies so far this year. So when we analyse that performance, what's the split between the return assets, i.e. our stock exposure and the diversifiers? I'll take the sterling portfolios um, as the base here, though the trend is uh, similar for the, for the others as well. So for the last three months, returns are very much skewed uh, to the return assets. And, and this is what we would expect in a period of rising markets. So the return assets contributed around 7% and the diversifying assets cost 0.4%. So the balancing item to get to the overall portfolio performance numbers, which I've just mentioned, was currency, uh, which took off one and a quarter percent as the pound rallied a bit. And somewhat unusually, Hugo, I think for the year, we're actually seeing both sides of the portfolio, i.e. the return assets and the diversifying assets contributing. Yes, and this is very unusual because they tend to to work in in the opposite uh, direction. So, I mean, I can't think of of another period that we've been running the portfolios where we've we've seen both sides uh, delivering performance. So I think most of us, you know, probably given the year that we've had a surprise to see portfolios up for the year, given everything that's happened. And it certainly seemed unlikely back in the spring when things were in sort of free fall. You mentioned that a number of portfolio holdings have had a nice rally. You know, what's rallied? And you're not going to get away with it, Hugo. What about the banks? Well, no, the banks haven't been the bigger ralliers over over the last quarter, though we do have some encouraging signs there. And I'll come back to that in a moment. The biggest bounce uh, came from Deer, which we topped up earlier in the year uh, at at a very good uh, level. In fact, the shares have uh, nearly doubled since. So the shares were up uh, 41% um, over the last quarter, following some exceptionally strong results, surprisingly strong. And other notable contributions were from Berkshire Hathaway, uh, shares up 19%, really catching up a bit of performance there. Uh, So the cable companies have been very strong all year and continued. So Charter and Comcast were up 22% and 19%. Uh, They're seeing some very strong uh, subscriber numbers. Admiral Insurance up 19%, Mastercard up 15%, and some of the funds, so notably Bears Capital and Vanda, which, which was previously called Cedarberg, uh, the Chinese fund, they were up 21% and 15%, and those are continuations of uh, strong runs for most of the year. 
Uh, so it's a quite an eclectic mix of different performers, and and that's certainly what's given us our lump in the in the Q3. And talking about the banks, uh, and I know I'm not going to be left off the hook here, we do seem to be seeing some tentative early signs of a rotation uh, from the tech stocks to other parts of the market. So the banks, Lloyd's, Wells Fargo, were down in the third uh, quarter, 15% and 8%. Uh, respectively in local currency terms. However, they have recouped those losses so far in October. So perhaps, perhaps this is the uh, start of a recovery. Well, let's hope so. So this is really the sort of big growth versus value. And I know that's being too sort of broad about it. But, you know, what do you think it might take to trigger a rotation in the market? And how are we positioned if that does happen? Absolutely. I mean, this is this is the subject of lots of discussion um, between the portfolio managers uh, and our network, uh, not least uh, Victor and Kevin in the strategy team. What we do know is that the valuation elastic between the sort of mega cap growth, you know, largely technology stocks and pretty much everything else is very stretched. So th this has thrown out some interesting stats. For example, the value of Apple stock is now greater than the FTSE 100 index of leading UK shares. Is this fair? Well, it's certainly quite striking. Alternatively, the value of the five largest companies, Apple and its four friends, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook, is now greater than the entire S&P 500 index during the global financial crisis in 2008-2009. So, so what might trigger a re-evaluation? Well, we, we can see that these companies and related technology companies more generally have been great beneficiaries of the pandemic, which has accelerated a number of pre-existing trends. So the obvious first step is really better news on the pandemic front. Uh, and aside from that, uh, a pickup in growth or inflation expectations might lead the market to question the value of highly rated jam tomorrow stories in favor of more lowly rated uh, jam today, or actually more realistically jam next year stocks. And the final thing that we've been thinking about is the uh, politics and regulation. So the FANGs or FAM, if you prefer, grouping have become very tall poppies and they're widely referred to as the modern monopolies. So there are some regulatory storm clouds on the horizon as well. And as, as Victor mentioned uh, earlier, you know, the Biden camp have been evaluating a number of changes to corporate taxes. And they've also been, been talking about uh, looking at these companies from a regulatory perspective as well. And those are potential threats. And coming back to how we'd be positioned for any sort of rotation? Well, we have a number of stocks and funds that could do very well. And in, in effect, it's those companies that we described as uh, being in the eye of the storm uh, in the last podcast. So it's the travel sector. So companies like Ryanair and Booking Holdings, the banks, hopefully, American Express, Fox has been impacted, particularly on the sports side, so that should recover. And there's considerable cyclical exposure, particularly UK-focused, within both the Phoenix and Lansdowne funds, but also to a, to a lesser extent in the other equity managers, such as IVI across Europe and Albizia in, uh, in the ASEAN region. At the same time, some of the less affected and more highly rated companies, such as S&P, Moody's, holdings within Vander and Bear, they, they could come under pressure. And this is where we've been selectively uh, reducing exposure. I know you've been trimming after some strong performance. Aside from the ones that you just mentioned, what, what else have you been doing from a transaction perspective in the portfolio? 
Yes, so, so we have made a number of sales over the last few weeks, just sort of nudging equity weights down a little following the market rebound. And aside from the four sales I just mentioned, we've also trimmed Amex and Deer. And in terms of the funds, we've taken some profits from the Vanda Fund. Uh, China's been very strong this year, and, and that happened in three tranches in July, August, and September. Uh, and we reduced the holding in IVI, the European Equity Manager. So a number of a number of, of reductions on the equity side. And on the diversifying asset side of the portfolio, we've added another put option. Uh, so a one-year option on the S&P 500 index, just topping up uh, protection levels a bit there. And we've also added some, some dollar inflation protected bonds or so-called TIPs to the sterling portfolios. We've held these in dollar portfolios for quite a while and we've decided to also buy them for the sterling portfolios, holding them within the investment grade bond fund, as they offer more attractive yields than UK uh, index linked gilts. So, Victor, we, I said I'd come back to you on inflation. So, the TIPS purchase is something of an inflation hedge. Are you worried about inflation? I mean, I kind of asked both of you that question. I think this has certainly been one of the more intriguing aspects of the sort of COVID crisis and really what does inflation mean and like what is it likely to be? Uh, over the medium term. I think economists have been almost universal in their belief that this is a deflationary event. Weak demand, uncertainty, certainly while COVID concerns persist, uh, and of course the weak oil price suggests that disinflation or deflation is more likely. And, and certainly in the case that that has been the case in the UK and indeed, indeed in Europe where we're actually seeing deflation at the moment. But what is likely to become apparent over the medium term is that these deflationary effects will start to fade. Uh, and this is not simply a function of the higher oil price. Certainly, as we see uncertainty start to fade and normal activity resumes, uh, and certainly in the context of you know, ongoing fiscal and monetary measures, and particularly in the context of the Fed's shifting policy framework, we think this may kindle some demand pull inflation with aggregate demand exceeding aggregate supply. But I should say we're not expecting some dramatic surge in prices, but we're probably, if we have to pin our flags for the mask, we're probably more loosely affiliated with the inflationary camp. Hugo? As the portfolio management team, we do feel it is a potential risk. And as Victor's already mentioned, we've been seeing unprecedented levels of monetary stimulus. Uh, and now we're seeing some big announcements around fiscal policy as well. So furlough schemes, bounce back loans, infrastructure projects, build back bigger, build back better, all of this stuff. Lots of taps uh, have been turned on. So inflation feels to us like the dog that hasn't barked uh, and it might bark at some point. And so we're thinking about various inflation hedges. So in inflation protected bonds are a part of that plan. And you've hedged the tips exposure back into sterling? Yes. I, I think that's a broader currency question as well. But Yeah, so we haven't made any dramatic changes to the overall currency positioning recently. And, and at the margin, uh, we feel that the pound continues to look a bit cheap compared uh, to its uh, peers. So the, the, the dollar hedges for the sterling portfolios, in, including the recent tips hedge, really reflect the substantial dollar exposure that comes from the equities and our decision to moderate that exposure. And after all, um, we may even get a sensible Brexit outcome. And I could, you know, that could be famous last, last words on my part. Dangerous uh, thing to say. 
<laughs> and in that scenario, the pound could go stronger. So there are there are risks both up and down, uh, and, and we're looking to find a sensible middle ground. And Hugo, your and my favourite question, uh, what are you most excited about? Well, in terms of general excitement, uh, there's a lot of buzz uh, around the hydrogen story uh, today, particularly as a means of storing and transporting electricity, which is generated from uh, renewable sources. Uh, so, so that's something that we've been looking at very closely. There's been a lot in the press about it, and a lot of sort of political announcements around sort of the new energy infrastructure as well. This is something that Linda, the industrial gases company, are extremely well placed uh, for. Uh, they have the assets and the experience to be a big player in this market. So there's lots of future optionality there that we're investigating, but that's certainly exciting. And then aside from that, it's really those, those pockets of deep value in the market. Uh, and so as long as the businesses aren't permanently impaired, and we don't believe that the ones that we are invested on your behalf are, then we should see a, a rebound at some point. Well, thank you, Hugo and Victor. I hope you've all enjoyed listening to the podcast. Please keep sending any questions that you have to your client advisor. And remember that they're available on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So please subscribe on either of those platforms so you receive them as soon as they're released. And please feel free to let anyone else you know uh, who might be interested to listen about them. Thank you for your continued confidence in us. And that's the end of the podcast. Please note... This audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.